Hi, this is Sam Genoway. I'm the author of Walter the Promise of Progress City and the Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide. And you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to Episode 75 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, we continue our three-part interview with Joe Cosgrove, author of Walt Dreamer's Me, conducted in person in the Club 1901 Lounge at Disney California Adventure. Last time we talked about what made Disney such a profound influence on his early life, as well as some other key individuals and events that shaped him, connected him, and positioned him for a pretty amazing journey. This time we're diving right back in where we left off and discussing Walt applying his beliefs. Not just his religious faith, but also the other things he believed in. And pretty much the entire episode is about Walt. Now, even though Christmas has passed, you may have some extra money. Or, more likely, money you got as a gift. So I've decided to extend the offer I made before Christmas. For a limited time, you can get an autographed copy of my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom, for $17. Of Once Upon Your Time, my first book, for $6. Or of both, for $20. For more details or to order, go to storiesofthemagic.com slash christmas14. If you're looking for something that will help you get 2015 off to a great start and make it one of your best years yet, these books are for you. Now, in this episode, Joe talks about Walt's beginnings with the Alex comedies and Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and the creation of Mickey Mouse. How Walt saved many companies from bankruptcy. Actually, I guess I should say how Walt and Mickey saved many companies from bankruptcy. Walt's political leanings and some politicians he was friends with, including his role in Ronald Reagan becoming President of the United States, storyboarding, Joshua Medor, the genesis, development, and premiere of Snow White, Mary Poppins, a great story about Walt Disney that Jimmy Dodge shared with Joe, and stories about Walt and Disneyland, including quite a bit about Candlelight Processional. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're, we're huge, huge Disneyland, Disneyland fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a Mickey, Mickey Day. day. 
And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. Talking about Walt applying his belief, this is a perfect place to talk about it. Walt is somebody comes out here and starts the studio. He's got a series called Alice Series, and when he's done, he's got this gal, and he puts up a sheet in front of a little building, a little bar, in some place where they were shooting. He's cranking, and Walt's crazy. This is silent movies, folks. And he he this he has this girl. He says, "Okay, do this," and she does all this. And afterwards, he kind of does the like little animation effects on it. It's the first time, in as far as I know, that someone actually had a live performer and then kind of put images or things around her. And uh, Universal was uh, was uh, distributing that, and they said to Walt, uh, Mr. Mink back there at Universal in New York, said, "Walt, could you come up with um, some kind of animal character or someone you know other than what you're doing?" And now I'll, I'll jump back. Uh, Walt grew up in Chicago, was born in 1901, you know, in the house his dad built, what the church his dad built. And uh, by the time he was five years old, interestingly enough, the par- the families were concerned about gangs and crime in Chicago. <laughs> Has anything changed, folks? <laughs> anyway, they decided to move to Marceline because uh, Robert, his brother, uh, he's, he's got a farm. And he says, sell your house and you can buy some acreage and build a house in Marceline. And he grew up in Marceline. Uh, as a kid with Roy, and they had the little dream team they climbed up in and dreamt about their dreams. But he liked animals. He discovered animals, horses, dogs, pigs. He used to ride his hog around and yahoo! And he used to climb up in the apple tree and he used to ride the horse and bring the apples down and everything else. So Walt thought about it, animals. And he thought about the rabbits he used to see running around, so he created Oswald the, the Magic Rabbit. Now, folks, this is a silent movie. Silent. He created, and it's, I've seen it at the studio, <laughs> in the archives, it's hysterical. It took off. It took off that year that it came out. I mean, this is a silent movie, and it, it was, it's a pure genius. You just, today, even though we're all of our stereo and the special effects that are blowing up the world, you watch Walt's, Walt's Build a Rabbit, you, you fall on the floor laughing. It's amazing. So they said to Walt, he had a, he had a contract, so he went back on the train, because back then, back in the 20s, there were no paved roads coast to coast, and they took the train. So he and Lillian took the train back to New York to sign a new contract with Universal, and Roy's praying that they're going to get it, because now they're making money. I mean, they're getting money, and the studio's taking off. He goes back, and he meets with Mr. Mink, and he sees the contract. Now, Roy's, you know, you can't, there's no phones, no cell phones, you can't call, you know, Roy's, you know, sending him a telegram. What's going on? What's happening? And because the whole, Roy feels the whole future of their studio is there. And Walt looks at the contract and he realizes that they have made a contract where he becomes an employee of Universal. And he says, guys, I have my own studio. I want to do my own studio. But he learns. Remember, this is brand new for him. He's just getting started. Mm-hmm. They have copyrighted Oswald. They own it. He didn't understand that when he video. He was new. I mean, he's a newcomer. Sure. So he says, I can't sign this, guys. Now, I remember what I was talking about, not being like others. He didn't curse them. He didn't get angry with them. He didn't yell at them. He just says, fellas, I can't do this. I have my own dreams. So he gets back on the train. And, of course, Roy, he's got the telegram from Roy. What's going on? And he doesn't have time to answer it. On the way back, he sketches out. Mickey. <clears throat> and Mickey is a little like takeoff on Oswald. You can see the little similarities there. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And, of course, he's calling him uh, 
he's diddling away, and he's calling him Mortimer, and it's finally Lily that says, you know, and Mortimer's, I like Mickey better, so it becomes Mickey. So when he gets back, he's got this character, and, and sound has just come to films. So when he gets off and he tells Roy Roy, he goes, my God, what are we going to do? He says, not to worry, we're going to do the first sound cartoon. And Roy said, sound's just a passing fad, what are you talking about? <laughs> so Walt proceeds, now listen folks, Walt proceeds to draw Steamboat Willie. Not only does he straw, draw Steamboat Willie, he figures out, he gets a little sheet, and he figures out how to time music so when he's making the sketches that Mickey can sing and dance to the music with the sound effects on the boat and everything else. And not only does Walt do all this, but Walt's Mickey's voice. Walt does, he loves doing Mickey's voice. And he does Mickey's voice, by the way, up until 1940. He's, every, every Mickey cartoon is Walt's voice. And then he got so busy at the studio, he couldn't do it anymore. But Walt, Disney, and Mickey Mouse are the same person. Mickey Mouse is a reflection, is a character reflection of Walt. You know, he can think for himself, he's quirky, he's funny. <laughs> so he creates Steamboat Willie, okay? Now remember, Universal's rejected him, okay? He doesn't curse him, he doesn't get angry. He goes back, he thinks positive. He's like Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers in the book of Genesis, and he ends up in a pit, and he's sold into slavery, and he ends up in the house of Potiphar, the, the head chief of law enforcement for the king of Pharaoh, and he lived, works in that house, and his Potiphar's impressed with him, but his, his wife accuses him falsely, and he ends up in jail. But ultimately, this kid, who lives by his values, because Potiphar never thought Joseph did anything wrong with his wife, because he saw how because he saw that Joseph had believed in God, and believed in being honest and being faithful to God, and this kid went from going from the pit to becoming a prince in Egypt. Walt Disney went from obscurity with his new character. This is the parallel between, because Joseph, Walt, Walt had read that story, and he knew all about it, no matter what's going around, no matter what other people say, no matter what the critics say, stay true to your values. So Walt creates Steamboat Willie, and when, it's, when, it, when it goes to Broadway, it is stunning. They, it, 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 it's a smash hit. And the money comes in. Everybody wants to see Mickey, and the studio is taking off. This is 1928. By 1935, Mickey's evolved. Josh Metter, a man I'll tell you about more in the show, they were reshaping Mickey, making him, I mean, you look at the early Mickeys, he's kind of skimpy and scry, you know. But they kind of made him more cuddly, more round, round ears, round stomach, round, you know. And they used to show me at the studio how they could make him. It's just a bunch of circles, you know. Mm-hmm. And so by 1935, listen to this. Mickey Mouse is the most famous movie star on the planet. And Walt talks to the people at Universal, calls up his friends, and said, you guys were such great distributors with Oswald the Rabbit. Would you like to distribute, Mickey? <laughs> Walt Disney, when he wrote it in his book, Disney Quote, you read it, he said, I say to myself, live a good Christian life. Do what is right. And uh, you see it in the park. You want to know why, you know why Disneyland's the happiest place in the world? Because Walt put built a place based on his values. And they're all over the park, especially in cast members. Mm-hmm. So, 
By 1935, our country's in a deep depression. I'm five years old, and I've yet to see Snow White. But Mickey Mouse is bringing, I mean, Mickey Mouse is bringing in 600K just on merchandise. So Walt, I want to tell you folks, Walt Disney was an innovator because he was the first man in movie history to relate merchandise with a character. No one had ever done that before. I mean, you know, all the silent movies, uh, with all the silent movie stars, and I met a lot of them when I was in Hollywood in the movie business, and they were geniuses, but... Uh, none of them had merchandise, so Walt Mickey merchandise was global. And I will tell you this, folks. During the Great Depression, when the United States government was given all kinds of promises by Franklin Delano Roosevelt called the New Deal, when that was going on, when that was going on, we have a little audience here, folks. So during the Great Depression, when Franklin Roosevelt brought about the, the New Deal. You might not even know about it, but it was very similar to what's been going on in recent times. It was the government growing and stimulating the economy with infusing cash and creating agencies and all kinds of agencies for the first time in our history were growing under Franklin Roosevelt. Um, so during the Great Depression, when unemployment was through the roof and people were losing their jobs and companies were closing, the government was trying to solve it, uh, and it wasn't working. Uh, Henry Morgenthau, the treasurer under Franklin Roosevelt, said to the New York Times in 1940, I told the president at the time it wasn't working, and I'm telling it now. And you can, if you don't believe me, go check it out. He was the secretary of treasury under FDR. <clears throat> FDR, I was, a, I, I was my hero. I used to hear him on the radio, and I thought he was a great man and so forth. And he was, he was very encouraging during the Depression. But his programs were not helping people get jobs. As a matter of fact, they were making the, the government was growing bigger and expanding, but people were unemployed. Now, let me tell you something, folks. Walt Disney, out of his imagination, created more jobs than the whole New Deal tried to do in 10 years, not only in the United States of America, but around the world, because he was a global phenomenon. Walt heard about a, com a watch company <clears throat> going out of business, Ingersoll Watch Company, and he got a hold of them, and he met with them, and he said, you know, I've always wanted to do Mickey on the wrist. How many employees you got? We got 300 employees. They're going to lose their jobs? You better, your company's a story. It's now called Timex, by the way, but back then... And Walt said, let me license you. Let me give you the artwork. I've always, and he gave him the artwork and said, this will turn your company around. A month later, Walt communicated with the president of that company. And he said, Walt, thank you. He said, how are you doing? He says, we've gone from 300 employees to more than 3,000. We've already sold more than 2 million Rocky Mouse watches. <laughs> By the time World War II came, they had sold up to 10. Then Walt, because Walt was a big train guy. Let's go back when Walt was growing up at Marceline. His Uncle Mike worked on the Santa Fe Railroad, and he loved the trains. You know, maybe we had to go back to New York. But when he was a kid, trains were how you got around the country. And you, you could drive on this nice train and have popcorn and food, and it was great, you know. So he loved trains, and he called the president of the land and company. He says, you, I love trains. I've got trains and models on my desk, Mickey trains. Come and see me. So the president of Lionel Trains met with Walt, and Walt said, don't close your company down. Here are the model. Take these bills. I'll license you. Once that deal was done, Lionel Train Company could not keep up with the demand. They went to six days a week, three shifts a day, and could not keep up with the demand. They're still here today. Walt did that, what I'm telling you folks out there, with 117 companies. 
change their future. Little rubber companies go down, but now they can make rubber dwarfs. And it goes on all the different varieties. So what I'm telling you folks is Walt the dreamer and the doer, this is what America's about. This is what built America. America was built by dreamers like the pilgrims from Scrooby, England, who, who suffered and then went to Holland and then finally came to America. They were dreamers. They were dreaming of being free. Folks, if you're listening to this program, for most of history, most of humans have been bondage to slave, in bondage. They've been slaves, literally, to the elite ruling class. If you lived in ancient Egypt and they ruled the world for 5,000 years, you work for Pharaoh, whether you're a barber or a surgeon or a builder or an artist, you or a ship captain, you worked for Pharaoh. He liked you. When, my, you were fine. Liked you, this girl, you're okay. And for, that, for most of history, the few, the elite, the emperor, the tribal chiefs in Africa, uh, the kings, the, the they ruled over people. For most of human history, the few have ruled over the many. America changed that. When you pick up the Constitution, it says, we, the people. For the first time in the history of the world, we have government of, for, and by the people. Not by political ruling classes or elitists, but by us. So America is a very unique company, country. And by the way, Walt knew all about this, this history of our country. And uh, uh, I, I bring that up because Walt was a big dreamer, and he was living in a free country where he could follow his dream. Our country, by the way, was formed as a republic, a democratic republic, where you had limited federal government, and the states had the rest of the powers. And, it was divided. and even in the federal level, power was divided. They had checks and balances. You had the judiciary. You, have the, you, know, you have the executive, and you have the legislative we started out with a republic. Over the years, we've been moved, I don't know, a, a movement called a progressive movement. They're very proud about it, starting back under Woodrow Wilson. And they, they believe, and they have every right to follow whatever they believe, they believe in bigger government. They believe the government is the answer to everything. <clears throat> Walt Disney didn't believe that. Ronnie Reagan didn't believe that. I don't believe that. And speaking of that, when I was working for Barry Goldwater, as you mentioned earlier at the top of the show, with Ronnie Reagan, one of our biggest supporters was Walt Disney. And Walt, when you, when you contribute to the Goldwater campaign, you get a gold button that says G64, and you can put it on your, you know, on your left suit. When he did that, he put it on a lot of stars, because I was working, I met Rock Hudson, Bob Stack, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., uh, I mean... Some of the great stars of the business were all at the rallies for, for Barry Goldwater, a great American war hero, just a, a tremendous guy, a good friend, of, by the way, of John F. Kennedy. But above all, Senator Goldwater was honest, and he wrote the book The Conscience of a Conservative. And, uh, you know, when he went back to the White House in the 64 campaign when Barry was running for president to get a gold, the highest award from the president, Lyndon Johnson was running against Barry Goldwater, when he leaned over to put this big, the highest award a somebody could get, he looked at Walt's lapel, and there was a G64 button there. <laughs> that was Walt. Walt never said anything. He just wore it, because that's in my suit. It's staying, you know? Uh -huh. But Walt, <clears throat> in my book, uh, Walt Dreamers Me, if you get a hold of it, on Amazon, I tell the back story, and you, if you've gotten read my book all the way through that or not, but the guys that really were behind Ronald Reagan running for a public office one day were Walt Disney, Bob Hope, 
John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. They were all close friends, all close friends. And they're the guys that when Ronnie, Ronnie was uh, uh, an actor, he was a sports broadcaster, but he was also president of the Screen Actors Guild. And at the time, he was a, a host of the General Electric Theater, and he was going around a television show, and he was going all around the country seeking about free enterprise and free what makes America great, following your dreams. And these guys, well, it took a while. Well, it was unfortunate not here when he did it. But ultimately, Ronald Reagan, who by all things was honest. Remember what I told you about Ben Franklin, where truth and honesty are wanting everything? When Ronnie became governor and when Ronnie became president, the opposing political party controlled the legislature. And I happen to know Jess Underwood, and I happen to know Tip O'Neill. And everything Ronald Reagan wanted to get done, even though the opposing party opposed it, well, you know, ideologically, he got done because he was honest and they respected him. He kept his word. He meant what he said. He said, I knew Jess Unruh very well, the speaker. And when Ronnie became governor, I was up interviewing Jess and I said, now this is a liberal Democrat up there, but, but a good guy. Jess, uh, Jess Unruh believed in business. He worked hard for, for uh, business climate and I was representing industry all over California, in Sacramento, from agriculture to aerospace, and Jess Arnold would have standing committees and businessmen who were experts in taxes or this or that were on these committees so that no legislation got through when Jess was governor without businessmen giving their input because he wanted to have a good business climate in our state. So we said, before we pass this legislation, let's, let's, let's have experts from uh, and, the, and, and, we, and our job at the California Manufacturing Association was to bring these experts so they could meet with the legislators and, and open hearings and say, if you pass this bill, you, this is going to happen. Well, anyway, I'm talking with Jess after Roddy's been elected governor. And I said, what do you think of the new governor? And he said, he's going to be terrific, Joe. He's welcomed me. I'm always welcome to talk with him. Above all things, he's honest. I respect him. I have the high respect. Warren Dorn the uh, Board of Supervisors in Los Angeles, along with Kenneth Hahn, very conservative Republican, whose district was where Walt's movie studio and where the, the ranch is up there, 850, 900 acres with the back lot up in, up in at that part of the district. They were all Warren's district. So Warren and, and Walt met every week. They had lunch every week. They did a lot of things together. Uh, I was a very close friend of Warren's for many, 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 many years, and his home was filled literally, literally of hundreds of pictures of him and Walt at the Coliseum, over here, over there, and they were very, 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 very close. And Warren Dorn is the one that told me the backstory about Ronnie and all the guys and Walt, because I never knew that. Because uh-huh. I asked Warren, how come you never ran for governor? And that's what he told me what happened. Because he had told Walt one day at the lunch, just, I'm going to file a run for governor on a Monday. And by Wednesday, he got a call from Walt saying, you know, I've been talking around the guys. We love you, buddy. We want you to back Ronnie Reagan. Because he's a much better speaker than you. He's far more well-known than you are because you're just an alley. He's all over television, all over the place. And and Warren said that after that, when John yeah. Wayne called him, he finally said, okay, yeah, I talked to Walt. But then when Bob Hope, who was one of his closest friends, he said, no, I've decided I'm going to back. I'm going to back Ronnie. But that's kind of... Warren Dorr was one of the finest politicians I've ever met. Very honest. And Kenny Hahn, who was a liberal Democrat, would tell you the same thing. By the way, when Ronnie became president on the way back to Washington, uh, he spoke at the Board of Supervisors, and I met Kenny Hahn about a week later, who was a good friend of mine. He was a fan, listened to me on the radio. He you know, went to Fuller's broadcast, and he heard me on radio, and he was a big fan. That's how I met him. 
I was in the office with Kenny on something else, and I said, what do you think of the new president? And he said he was here. We spoke to the board, and he came in, and he knelt. we knelt by this couch together, and we prayed together. And Joe, he's going to be one of our greatest presidents. This is, this is what we need in our society. Hey, guys, we're all Americans. You're a liberal Democrat. I'm a conservative this, or I'm a moderate, or I'm a hybrid. Hey, we're all Americans. Let's respect each other. I do. I, I've worked for Democrats and Republicans as a campaign manager. Mm-hmm. If the, I, there were some incredible Democrat people that, you know, that believe in our freedoms, our, our free enterprise. What's happened is is the, the the big the big growth of government, which concerned Walt. And I will tell you that's the reason why he put Lincoln in the parks. If you go to park and hear Mr. Lincoln's speech, the message is, if America ever goes down, it'll be an inside job. Mm-hmm. Walt did that on purpose, folks. Walt Disney, Mickey Mouse, is incredible. Just a household. They're getting 10,000 letters a week to Mickey. The studio is bursting like crazy. Walt goes down and takes a vacation goes over to Europe. He, he and Roy go over in a village. He goes out of Panama Canal with Lily and Walt's storyboarding future things. Storyboarding is something Walt, if you folks have not aware of it, storyboarding is something Walt invented. I'm here with Randy and I can look over at the storyboard walls. Right over here I can see it. About 25 feet away. A wall full of hand drawings where quick draw artists would hear Walt speak and draw, there'd be a team of them, and they, as fast as he would speak, they would draw pictures so that he could show people what he wanted on the screen visually, because Walt knew that 80% of what we learn comes through our vision system. So Walt is the man who created storyboarding. Everybody uses it today and uh, to make a movie, because Walt felt if you could see it, you could hear it. By the way, Snow White initially had no script. It was flowing out of Walt's mind, and the original grim fairy tale of Snow White and the thing you see on the film, I mean, it's just, those, those dwarfs in the, in the original are pretty nasty. They, by the way, they had no names, but they were a pretty little nasty little bunch. And uh, when he wanted to do that, um, the seven, when he wanted to do Snow White and Seven Wife, his wife thought, what? You know, what do you, you know, Walt made the studio successful on cartoons, folks. Walt had a better idea. That's why he brought Josh Meador into the studio. Walt decided he wanted to take cartoons to a higher level. Remember we talked about how Charles Fuller wanted to take radio to a higher level? Yeah. Well, Walt decided we could do better than these like 2D flat-screen characters. I want to create caricatures that humans, that viewers, can relate to existentially, emotionally. I want them to look at these characters in a different way so in order to do that he had to go from the primitive because the primitive the, doing the cartoons was a walk in a park that's why Walt was able to do that you know it was hard work trust me it's all hard work it's all hand drawn but when you go to animation so Walt in 1933 he's brainstorming because he saw Snow White as a kid and uh, the reason I mentioned the Panama Canal and the little villages over there is because Walt, Walt was gathering information. Panama Canal, someday we're going to have in my park, we're going to have an adventure. 
You know what it's called today. It's right there at Disneyland. <laughs> and uh, so Walt's gathering information because Walt started dreaming about Disneyland way back, way back. He's dreaming about this place because he's got kids and he's taking them to Sunday school and then he's going out of the park and he's he says, yeah, you know, this place is, you know, there's not much for kids. We can do better. And he had visited a lot of amusement parks and he didn't like them. He said, amusement parks and carnivals, all they want to do is milk people. They just want to milk their people. I want to do a place where we don't do that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Walt is a big dreamer, and he's dreaming about going from cartoons to animation. And he's the, Walt Disney is the founding father of animation. He's got 300 cartoonists working on making the Mickey stuff, and he's got to ramp up because now he wants to do a full feature. So when he tells Roy this, and his, they think of a 90-minute of cartoon thing, they don't understand. He's going to take cars and do something different. So he's retraining the cartoonists. He's brought, he brought somebody from the Art Institute. And he's, re, he's bringing in real people and animals. He's teaching about it. And he brings in Josh Meadow, who's already... And he makes him the art director. And then eventually 600 people are working on that film. Now, folks... Snow White is totally hand-drawn. They had a crew of a handful of people on every character because one guy couldn't do it all. So one guy would focus on the mouth because you have to understand that every time Snow White or the dwarf spoke, you can look at their lips. It's like a real person. A guy had to draw that. And Josh used to tell me, because I knew nothing about it, how they used to sit in front of the mirror playing the audio and doing the the thing to get it right and he had to do it until he got it right because if it wasn't right Walt made him do it over again okay it had to be perfect so when they were doing when they were going to do this Roy and his wife thought he was crazy because they kept thinking he was going to do a big cartoon and they said no one's going to Walt said no we're going to do something it's going to be totally different it's going to have greater space texture dimension so that's when Walt um, started getting his own. He didn't like the color he could buy in a store, so he sent guys over to Arizona to get pigments out of the ground. And the first room I went to when I went to Disney Studios with Josh Bobby in there was the paint room. And he said, well, we make our own paint. He wasn't satisfied. Walt was a perfectionist. He wanted, and you look at the colors on Snow White. Now, they had some people that is all they did. was do the, They did the coloring, or they did the background. They were all, Walt was the first guy in Hollywood to do a division of labor, especially doing animation. But he took cartoons. Now, Roy and his, and his wife really were opposed to this, but Walt went out, wanted to do it, and they were burning 20K a week, and they finally had to borrow money from the Bank of America to, to get to do this thing. And Hollywood, they thought this guy over in Burbank was crazy. <laughs> what the heck is this guy doing, you know? They had, they had, well, they collected 600, over 600, well, Josh told me, over 600 pages of names for the dwarfs. And uh, Walt wanted, uh, Walt was fussy about the voices because he grew up listening to radio, and he said voices are very critical. So... Hundreds of people came in for every one of those characters, and Walt had a speaker wired up to his office from the soundstage because he just he didn't want to see him. He just wanted to hear the voices. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of people came in for every one, and Walt picked out the voices for every, including the gal who played Snow White. He listened to us. He listened to a couple of hundred before he said, "Up, oh, that's the one." I need to find out that she was a child of a man who was in the opera business, and he had you know taught, taught his 
his child very well to speak. The gal that became the queen was a classical artist, uh, and uh, she uh, was a classically trained Shakespearean actress, and she did the queen's voice so eloquently. Walt said, hire her, and that, don't let her go. She'll be the queen. But while I was talking to the guy, he heard the scream, and all of a sudden he was hearing the hag's lines, and he said, who's that? He says, it's the same woman. She just took out her false teeth, and she's up there reading the script. He said, great, hire her. We'll get two voices for the price of one. <laughs> but if you, hear, if you see Snow White next time you see it, and you hear the queen, and then you hear the hag, it's the same woman. Uh-huh. Amazing. Uh, Roy was biting nails. I mean, everything was up. Everything was on the line. And when, of course, the rest is history. Uh, they made, Josh told me they made more than two million cells, all hand-drawn. Walt created the multiplane camera so you could have the foreground, background, middle ground, so you could have the moon and the building stand still while the characters move through the forest and all that. So that was, Walt was a, like Benjamin Franklin, he was an inventor. He was not only an innovator and not only raising things, he was, a, you know, Ben Franklin invented um, bifocals. Ben Franklin invented the lightning rod. Ben Franklin discovered electricity. Yes, folks, for a million, for uh, all the time humans were on a planet, until Ben Franklin was born, there was no electricity except in the sky. And nobody could harness it. They were burning candles or burning wood, uh, or burning whale oil from the whales. But it was Ben Franklin that discovered electricity. And then, of course, Thomas Edison harnessed it and began building power plants that changed our world. You, you, there, there's not one of you, you're listening to this broadcast today with Randy because of electricity. He's holding this recorder. He said, I'm sitting in this room looking at pictures of Walt all over the place, and they're all lit up by electricity. And you know what happens when the electricity is shut down? You know, don't open the refrigerator. The power company's going up. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't watch TV. You can't do anything. So Walt was a pioneer, folks. And when Snow White finally was released, by the way, he was forced to show the banks of America some rushes because they needed more money, and he was reluctant to do it. But once he did... Uh, as I, Josh was telling me, he said, this banker looked at you, you know how bankers are, right? He said, I walked all the way out to the car with him, he never said a word to me. And I said, oh, and then he, before he got the car, he said, Walt, you're going to make so much money, you know, you're going to make a pot full of money, whatever it was. And Walt came back and told Josh that. So the night of the premiere, um, for 40, 30 or 40,000 people showed up around the theater. <laughs> 4,000 people get in the theater. Walt had an orchestra in the theater playing the music. He had the first Disney characters with primitive costumes there. He was a showman. And uh, Cecil B. DeMille was there. All of the Hollywood, Clark Gable and his wife sat right next to him, right next to, to Lillian and, and Walt. But all the famous movie, you know, were there. Orson Welles, I mean, they were all there to see this. And, you know, C.B. DeMille was the greatest movie director in the history of Hollywood, a pioneer in the movie business, and he was there. And when Snow White came on, and when that, and, 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 and Walt told Josh Bedard the day after the premiere, he said, when I, when I was sitting next to Clark Gable, when Snow White died, Clark Gable cried. I felt he reached out and grabbed his handkerchief and started dabbing his ears, and I said, yes, we've done our job. He's connected, you know. So when the movie was over, the 
he told Josh, he said, the place, they went ballistic. They stood up. They cheered. They stopped the feet. They slammed the stick. They just turned around and just... Cecil B. DeMille came up and said to him, this is a miracle what you did. <laughs> Folks, we take it all for granted. Walt Disney, all his life, learned the tools when he was a kid, drawing his first pictures, looking at animals, when he went over to World War I, making sketches of us and setting them back, when he worked at the advertising agency and did his little cartoons things. Walt was learning the business. He learned, Walt was a hands-on guy. He learned by running a camera. He learned by, in other words, he learned by doing. Walt was not only a dreamer, but he was a doer. So it just didn't happen. Remember, he started with Alice? Now, after Snow White, he did Song of the South, and Josh Meador was the uh, special effects director on Song of the South, and added it all. So when Uncle Remus had all the bluebirds and all of that, it was Josh Meador that did all that special effects drawing of the of of the animated characters interacting with live action. And Josh also was the man that was the lead on doing the animation on Mary Poppins. I was gone from the studio at the time; I was living somewhere else. And I was in touch with Josh, and I said, "What's going?" I said, "We're doing Mary Poppins. We got Dick, Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews. They're on a they're on a sync stage, Joe. They're doing great. They're hitting their numbers." He said, "It's amazing what they're doing." That movie was basically shot on a stage, an empty stage. A lot of that stuff. And after they did their marks and after they did their routines, Josh and was had the lead. They would draw in the background and the characters and all of the stuff that makes it look so amazing. But. Um, Mary Poppins, of course, was <laughs> like Snow White's become a classic. Above all things, folks, Walt was dreaming about a place called Disneyland. And we're going to take a little break so we can catch your breath and we'll be back to tell you about it. All right, we're back from taking our little bit of a break here. And we're actually going to shift gears from where we said we were going. Maybe we'll come back another time from where we were starting. But we're going to shift gears a little bit here. And, Joe, I want to ask you... I know that you have a lot of memories of Walt Disney, both yeah. personal ones and those that have been shared with you, and you've talked about some of them. Um, but of ones that you haven't already told me, are there any uh, favorite or most meaningful ones? I remember when we were at the Disney Anna show back in July when we met, you had told me one about Walt and Jimmy Dodd. So I know yeah, I want to hear a, that that's one a very, especially. That's a, Jimmy Dodd was the uh, host of the Musketeer Club, uh, Mickey Mouse, which was the highest rated... Uh, ABC, when ABC was first uh, getting set the context, when they were first getting started, the ABC Television Network, uh, they wanted to get Walt Disney bad. They knew if we could get Walt Disney, we'll get viewers. And Walt, of course, is dreaming about doing Disneyland, and he's going clickety 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 click. So he agrees. He said, "I'll, I'll, I'll do this for you, but you have to invest." And my, my next project. And he told Mr. Goldman, they told the guy what the project was. He said, oh, we're happy to do that. They had money. They had plenty of money to start this network. So he, uh, Walt, did the show. It was called Disneyland. That was the name of the show. And he loved it because he said, we get to promote this park as it's being built. Mm-hmm. We get, you know, we're going to... And what's really, what was really interesting is that Walt put uh, a whole bunch of still cameras all or everywhere the place was being built and he did a lot of stop action photography the whole time the place was being built and then on well, the first show when they opened up the park he had this he had this clip where they showed the park and built like in you know the building's going up like in 10 seconds guys <laughs> digging like maniacs you know what happened you could see the whole park over that was the kind of showman Walt had it had and of course 
Disneyland, the TV show, owned TV when it was on. And the day that they did the grand opening and Ronnie Reagan and Art Linkletter were there hosting with Walt opening Disneyland, they had Super Bowl ratings for that show. I mean, the, most of the country was watching mm-hmm. that. But, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I got off track, but I wanted to mention that because your question again was uh, the starting with the story about Jimmy Dodd. And yeah, Jimmy Dodd. We were talking now, about the Mickey Mouse Jimmy Club. Dodd was on TV. Uh-huh. That's I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, that was that, that's because Jimmy was doing the show, uh, the Musketeer Club show, and uh, Jimmy uh, and I were friends. We knew each other off the set, and I was over there one night after doing something with Josh Manor, and he was there, and because I was on, I was on the radio, and then I come over and spend some time with Josh. And he was there, and I said, hey, Jimmy, how you doing? I met in the cafeteria. He said, oh, I'm lingering. I said, yeah, you, did, you, did you do a rap on it? He said, oh, well, I'm done with the, the show. He said, um, every night. Now, Jimmy Dodd was picked up by Walt Disney, who heard him and, and hired him to be the host of that show. He said, this is the perfect guy to do my show. Mm-hmm. He said, um, every night before Walt goes home, I go to his office and he's had a long, as you know, he's had a long day and he, you know, I said, oh yeah, I don't know how he does it. he wears a lot of hats, and he says he lies down on this couch for about 15 to 20 minutes and I play gospel music for him and he always tells me Jimmy, best part of my day, now I can go home and sleep with some really positive music in my mind, see Walt knew that health and fitness was not just physical and uh and Walt was a swimmer and an equestrian. His big fault, however, was smoking, and of course that's a whole other matter. Mm-hmm. But that, but he kept saying, "This is everybody's going to have a fault." But if Walt hadn't smoked, he probably would still be with us. I mean, he lived a pretty, yeah, healthy lifestyle. But he got smoking during World War, you know, one, and everybody was doing it, and it was a thing to do. And but when I was there, everybody was smoking. They all liked Walt. They were chain smokers. They didn't one and the other. But Jimmy told me that that story, and I'm glad to share it because. That is the that 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 can bring me to Christmas candlelight mm-hmm. because Christmas candlelight is Walt's baby, and Walt wanted to share. And I tell people, and in the book Walt gives me, uh, I call it Walt's everlasting Christmas card. I tell people the greatest showman who ever lived, the most highly honored movie maker who ever lived, decided to share his faith in Christ at Disneyland and Christmas candlelight. And it's become a tradition. I would estimate that since it started in 58, between here and Orlando, conservatively, at least a billion people have heard about Christ's birth. Mm. And um, we're working on another book, and we've been interviewing cast members, because cast members are really a key for Walt's formula for what takes place in the park. Mm -hmm. And one of them told me that he was doing the Merry Merry Christmas Parade in the 50s, or the early 50s, when they had that for the Merry Merry Christmas Parade, and they had narrators on uh, cast members who would do, speak with microphones to go on the trip from uh, all the way into downtown, and he happened to be on the roof of the Emporium. Okay. And he decided that he would stay there and wait for this new thing called Christmas Candlelight. So after he did the Merry Merry Christmas Parade, he just stayed there. And he said... All of a sudden, this people came out, the orchestra came out, and I saw these Herald Trumpeters up there, and I saw some bell ringers, and a pipe organ guy was there, and, and uh, all of a sudden, this choir came down Main Street, and it just was like endless, and it split up, and it was I heard later it was a thousand people in it, 
uh, and 500 went up on one side and five went up on the other side in front of the railroad station and formed a living Christmas tree. Now, in this, in this Christmas candlelight, Walt, Walt put it together. He, picked, he went to the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, which tells the story of Christ's birth. You remember the words that came to pass in those days. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And everybody went to their hometown. And Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem. And Mary was great of child. You know, you've heard that. So that's the story of Luke going all the way down to the, the shepherds and the, the stable scene and so forth. So Walt picked that, that narrative from Luke. And then he, what, he did, what he did is he broke it up with putting music. He decided he would put musical Christmas carols, traditional carols, to storyboard what you were hearing. So you hear the guest narrator read several passages that then the choir sings or the soloists sing all the way through. That's how the program works. Mm-hmm. So this very first weekend of it in 58 when they're doing it, he says, I'm standing on the roof and he said, it's really, you know, it's awesome. And this guy, he said, and then the guest narrator walked out and I lost it. It was John Wayne, my hero as a kid. John Wayne was the first narrator. John Wayne, as you've, as you've seen in my book, is a very close, lifelong friend of Walt's. And uh, when Walt called him, he says, you bet. And then Cary Grant and then Charlton Heston, a lot of people that knew Walt were, were happy to do it for him. And I recall when James Earl Jones did it. Mm-hmm. James came to Club 33 uh, the night he was going to do it, and I sat near him. I didn't sit with him, but we walked out together, and... He was kind of trembling, and I said, Are you okay, Jim? And he looked at me, and he said, Joe, tonight I'm going to share the story of my blessed Lord Jesus with the whole world. And he was almost in tears. And I just like, whoa. So uh, I have to tell you, uh, Randy, about a couple of years ago, I was talking to Al Nassau. Now, Al Nassau's in charge of special events on Main Street, and he's does Christmas candlelight every year, but mm-hmm. he did a light novel when Red Scott did a Christmas show. He was there. He did the special events, special, you know, telecasts and so forth. He's there. And I told Al Nasa that story mm-hmm. about when James Earl Jones was the guest narrator of Christmas candlelight. He said, I'm so glad you told me that, but let me tell you something. He said, let me be like Paul Harvey and tell you the rest of the story. I said, really? <laughs> he said, the night that James came, as you know, the choir comes out and splits. Five hundred go up by with him speaker's podium is and five going to go the other way and they form the living Christmas tree it is most narrators come there and they sit stand right there at the podium he said when the choir started coming down all of a sudden James Earl Jones got up left the podium and walked down to where the choir was going to go by to walk up and I followed him to make sure he was going to get in the, he's going to be okay uh-huh. and I stood behind him and as the choir members on that side were going by he was saying Merry Christmas God loves you Jesus loves you Merry Christmas to every looking at every single choir member in the face now we're talking 500 every uh-huh. reaching out and touching them he said I'm behind him about four feet watching this and these kids are going by and the, every one of them the tears are literally blowing down their face. Mm-hmm. And he said, that weekend, that choir sang <laughs> their... They sang their heart and soul out because of how this man touched them. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was there. And it was very emotional for him. He did it, you know, the two nights. Right. But you could tell of his passion, <laughs> this great man with this incredible voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I thought people would enjoy knowing that the guy really was, this is not phony, this is a real deal guy, you know? Right. Yeah, right. yeah. So that's wonderful. I love that. And, and since you just mentioned your book, let's go ahead and talk about the book itself okay. for a little bit. Because I, you know, people are hearing this interview, but I also want them to go get the book. Yeah, it's on so Amazon. So that they can hear right, more. Yeah. Right. Um, why did you decide to write it? My wife said to me, you know, you've been impacted in your life by so many people, including Walt Disney. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Joe Cosgrove for being my guest and to you for listening. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book like Joe, or you've created a website, you're blogging, doing something with performance of music or art or any kind of fine art creation, anything like that, and you want to tell people about it, why it matters to you and why Disney matters to you, then I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience or had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, I'd love to hear from you too. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. As a reminder, I have extended that limited time offer selling my books in paperback and autographed at a discount. Check out storiesofthemagic.com slash christmas14 or click the link in the show notes for details or to order. Since this is the last episode before New Year's, I want to go ahead and wish everybody who's listening a very happy New Year. I hope that it is everything that you hope for and expect it to be and more. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too, including one to Joe's book, Walt Dreamer's Me, and to his website. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. And you know, as an extra special little Christmas, New Year's gift to me, I'd really appreciate a couple more ratings that I mentioned a little bit ago. So if you could just take a minute or two to go into Stitcher Radio or iTunes and rate the show, I would really appreciate that. And hopefully you like it enough to rate it five stars. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.